الحمد لله الحمد لله الذي هدانا سبلنا يهدي من يشاء ويضل من يشاء نحمده في السراء ونحمده في الضراء ونحمده على كل حال حمدا يوافي نعمه ويكافئ مزيده وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له القاهر فوق عباده والله غالب على أمره ولكن أكثر الناس لا يعلمون وأشهد أن سيدنا ومولانا وولي أمرنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله وما كان الله ليعذبهم وأنت فيهم وما كان الله معذبهم وهم يستغفرون من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يتوكل على الله فهو حسبه نعم المولى ونعم الحسيب أما بعد <coughs> Dear brothers and sisters on الصراط المستقيم We're going to continue in this khutbah the sequence of undoing, trying to undo at least in our minds and in our hearts, trying to undo the damage that was inflicted upon us at the highest level of decision-making for almost 14 centuries now. <clears throat> we said in the previous khutbas that we are carrying a load of what I call Umawi Islam. Like in today's world, there's talk about American Islam. 14 centuries ago, there was something called Umawi Islam. And all of us, uh, all the Muslims, whatever school of thought you belong to, you're still living in that deviation. Either by 
ignorance or by reaction. It's one of two things. Either you're ignorant of what has been done to you throughout these 14 centuries or you're reacting to what has been done to you throughout these 14 centuries. And here's where we are today. We enumerated the examples of how Muslims nowadays are locked into petty definitions of who a pious Muslim is. And it has to do with offering the salah and the zakah and the siyam and going to hajj. This now, for 14 centuries, has become the way we evaluate ourselves. And we're stuck in this evaluation erroneous as it is you can be a crook a criminal a war criminal and you can still be praying you can still be paying your dues you still can fast Ramadan and go to Hajj many many times especially if you're a war criminal you have more access to Mecca and Medina than the average Muslim living who knows where. So this type of Umawi explanation and understanding and rebutting, all of this has been going in a vicious circle in these 14 centuries. And that's where we are today. So, let us take an example of how this narrow-mindedness affects the average Muslim. We have tens if not hundreds of millions of Muslims who are very strict about a simple thing as when you are going to your sajda, do you say, Allahu Akbar before you go to your sajda or you say Allahu Akbar while you're going to your sajda or you say Allahu Akbar after you reach your sajda big issue I remember one time this happened I don't want to mention any names And the criticism was of the person who was leading the salah is he said Allahu Akbar while going to the sajda. He didn't say it before or after. This this has become... These are the examples and I'm, I'm going to count some of these. Before I begin this, I want to make it clear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made our communication and our relation with him a matter of deeply felt ideas 
and notions in the heart the body doesn't matter that much it's what's inside deep down inside the person's body that counts so an example of this umawi misunderstanding and misexplanation of our Islam and dislocation of our priorities because of this you have khutaba and you have speakers and you have preachers and you have teachers and professors etc etc their concentration is on how you meet their standards of performing your rituals they don't speak to you about justice in your mind you're not supposed to go in the direction of wait a minute we Muslims have many resources in this world why are we poor oh that doesn't fit why because the Umawi implantation is deep down inside of you so we have let me give examples after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, just a couple of ayat Allah has not imposed on you difficulties in the performance in in the performance of all of his deen another ayah Allah wants for you to do his obligations in more or less the zone of tolerance meaning something you can tolerate he doesn't want you to break your back in your relationship with him the Prophet of Allah says make things more easy to do rather than making them more difficult to do and in another narrative concerning him if he get he, if Allah's Prophet was given the choice of doing two things that lead to the same result one of them is easier the other one is more difficult he would choose the one that is easier than the one that is more difficult now these ayat and this behavior of Allah's Prophet is absent from today's fanatical types of Muslims now let's see the the real results of what happens in the real world I'm taking these examples of these were in years past not in our recent maybe in the past century what I, what you're going to listen to now I have, uh, f- several examples happened in the last century and they all have to do with this umawi saturation of misunderstanding Allah and his prophet at one time 
This is in Egypt. At one time, a person, a scholar, led the prayers. It was a prayer that you say out loud, either Al-Maghrib, I think it was Al-Maghrib. He led the prayers and he began by saying, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. He didn't say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim and then Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. When the prayer was over, someone stands up and says, this prayer that we just prayed is void. Salah batila. It's void. We have to pray all over again. This scholar was surprised in his mind. He said, maybe I did something wrong. I don't understand what I did or I can't remember what I did. And anyways, the, the guy who said this prayer was an invalid prayer, he went and he led the salah. And the scholar prayed behind him. When the prayer was over, the scholar goes up to this person and says, you said my leading the prayer was invalid. What invalidated it? He said, you read Surah Al-Fatiha and you didn't say at the beginning, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The scholar told him, yes, I did. I said it to myself. I didn't say it out loud. He said, your salah is, our salah behind you is still invalid because you didn't say it out loud. You see, this, this area here is where the Umawi mindset wants us to get involved in pro and con. Another example. You might not know this unless you belong to the particular school of thought. I'm forced to say the school of thought. You may have realized in all of these khutbas, I try not to say the schools of thought, but sometimes I'm forced to. According to the Shafi'i school of thought, in Salat al-Fajr, you have to read Surat al-Sajdah. Surat al-Sajda has a sajda in it. <coughs> you read an ayah, one particular ayah in Surat al-Sajda, and you go down and you perform a sajda during the salah. And then you stand up and then you complete reading the surah. So the Muslims who are not scholars, who are not educated in Islam, etc., They've been doing this all their lives. Salat al-Fajr, on the day of Jumu'ah, they listen to Surah al-Sajda, and they've realized after all of these years that, that al-Fajr has three sajdas to it. So some of them thought, because of their lack of sufficient knowledge they thought the fajr was three rakahs three because they're doing three sajdas they thought salat al-fajr is three rakahs and here is where the umawi administrators they want to draw muslims in to make an issue out of this 
of course, they take advantage of the lack of knowledge among the Muslim public pertaining to these types of fiqhi details. <clears throat> and then we go to the Hanafi school of thought. The Hanafi school of thought says that the the person who is behind the Imam were praying together and the Imam is reading, reciting, let's say Surah Al-Fatiha. If you're a Hanafi and you're behind the Imam, you don't, you can't read Surah Al-Fatiha because the Imam is reading it. You just listen. And in the Hanafi school of thought, there's a difference between a fard and a wajib. A fard is something that is extra mandatory. If you don't do it, whatever you're doing is not counted. If it's salah, if it's whatever it is. And then less than al fard is wajib. It's a fard, but it's a lesser fard. If you don't do it, whatever you're doing, let's say a salah here, a salah. So when the imam reads his salah, we all, all the Muslims know that when you recite your salah, you recite Surah Al-Fatiha. All Muslims know this. But the subtle detail in the Hanafi school of thought says, the recitation of the Fatiha is a wajib, not a fard. Meaning if you didn't recite in your salah Al-Fatiha and you recited something else from the Quran, that's your salah is accepted but a lesser acceptance this creates a problem especially between those who belong to the Shafi'i school of thought and those who belong to the Hanafi school of thought it creates a problem and the problem sometimes can become physical <clears throat> give you an example I don't want to mention the, the country so people don't get disturbed. It's enough for us to learn from our mistakes, the mistakes that are still dividing us, learn from these mistakes rather than, you know, to think about a certain people in a certain way. I can tell you the country if you want after the khutbah, but my, my intention is not to have certain brothers and sisters who may come from that country feel a little upset uh, so in one of these salah the imam read the fatiha and then there were two persons behind the imam one of them from the hanafi school of thought the other one from the shafi'i school of thought 
So the one from the Hanafi school of thought heard the Muslim next to him recite the Fatiha. Because in the Shafi'i school of thought, it's mandatory to recite Al-Fatiha when you are behind the Imam. So when the Salah was over, immediately when they stood up, these two individuals, the one from the Hanafi school of thought, hit the person who was praying next to him, who read the Fatiha, in the chest and knocked him down inside the masjid. After the clarification of the whole issue, why did you do that? He said, because this is, look what this person did. He was reading the Fatiha in a Salah. Umawi Islam, brothers and sisters, Umawi Islam. Another thing, in Al-Maliki school of thought, if you were to swear by Allah that all the hadiths in Muwatta Malik are sahih, then you're right. According to the same madhab, if you were to swear that all the hadiths in Al-Bukhari and Muslim are sahih hadiths, you have to make up for it's called hanth in the fiqhi language, which means you broke your word, you broke your vow. Umawi Islam, brothers and sisters, this is where we are. If someone belongs to him, I'm just taking examples of two or three madhabs, but this applies to all the madhabs. If someone is not doing it the way you think is right, and you have all the right in the world, to agree to what you think and your heart agrees is right. But don't hurt the other Muslim who doesn't see things your way, but he's looking and trying to move in the right and in the same direction. Don't do that. If you do, you should realize that you are suffering from an Umawi disease. Another example, you may have realized when you pray during the tashahud, when you're sitting down, you say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna muhammadan rasulullah. When you say that, certain Muslims, they move their index finger, their sababa, they go like this, moving their finger. Many Muslims don't do that, but some of them do. According to their school of thought, they indicate their affirmation of the shahada by moving one finger. In other words, they're trying to say, if we wanted to give it a good construct, they're trying to say, I'm not only saying it, I also mean to move by it. Why should anyone turn hostile to a Muslim who does something like that? Why? 
This happened once in a country, and once again, I'm not going to mention the country. A Muslim was praying next to another Muslim, and he saw the other Muslim next to him during the tashahud, moving his index finger up and down, like that. After the salah was over, they got into a fight, and the Muslim who objected broke the finger of the Muslim who was moving it. Umawi Islam. This is uh, a simple example of where we are. We can't move beyond this. We can't make room for ourselves. In another instance of this, suppose this is our, all of our Islam, when you read the Quran and when you understand the Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the galaxies, the universe, the heavens, the night, the day. This world, the world to come, equality, brotherhood, justice. And we speak about what? These types of issues. You go, they, they speak in their halaqat and they say the ulama said this and the ulama said that. And this is what they tell you. Another example of this tension that shouldn't exist, another example is what the, a hard-headed person from the Hanafi school of thought, scholar, is asked, is it permissible for a woman from the Hanafi school of thought, is it permissible, excuse me, is it permissible for a man from the Hanafi school of thought to marry a woman from the Shafi'i school of thought. And the answer to that from the hard-headed types uh, is no, it's not permissible. A Hanafi man cannot marry a Shafi'i woman. Okay, you ask them why. Why isn't it permissible? The answer to that they tell you is She doubts her own Iman. Okay, explain that to us. Why does she doubt her, her own iman? Because they say it is permissible in the Shafi'i school of thought to say, Ana mu'minun insha'Allah, if Allah wills it. So in that understanding of that particular type of Hanafi, she has doubt in her own iman. And you can't marry a, a, a person who doubts their own iman. Umawi Islam. Umawi Islam. And then the more enlightened Hanafi hardheads, and I mean no disrespect to any school of thought, Hanafis or otherwise, those who are less fanatic say, no, it's permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'iyah because it is analogous with a Muslim marrying a kitabiya, meaning a Jewess or a Christian woman. So because there's permission for Muslims to marry a Yahudiya or a Nasraniya, then it becomes permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'iya. Umawi Islam, 
umawi islam and then you go to the shafi'i fanatic fanatics are all over the place don't think just because i'm bringing examples from these particular schools of thought that you don't have the same type of fanaticism in your particular mother whatever that other madhab is because this is a disease that all of us are suffering from all of us so you come to a shafi'i type of stubborn headed person and you ask him what ha- this happened i mean this is an answer i'm not i mean, this is not hypothetical i'm not saying things that didn't occur they say what happens if a drop of wine falls into someone's food is it permissible for a muslim to consume that food to eat that food he says no it's not it's not permissible for a Muslim to eat that food you throw that type of food either to a dog or to a Hanafi and the the detail of this is which some of you may not know probably needs just a couple of minutes of explanation in the fermentation and some people say you shouldn't say this in the public Brothers and sisters, we're being killed left and right, night and day, here and there. And some of the our weaknesses, we're not supposed to diagnose and we are not supposed to overcome and move forward. If we don't look at ourselves and try to improve, then how are we going to improve? So the detail here is pertaining to this drop of wine in food that we're supposed to throw to the dogs or to the Hanafis. In the fermentation process, way back then, these schools of thought, they came into existence over a thousand years, well, over a thousand years ago. They looked at the fermentation process and they found out this is before today's science today we have islamic well-qualified scientists in chemistry in medicine in biology in whatever but no one looks at this little issue here from our fiqh of over a thousand and i don't know 200 years ago they don't look at this why Umawi Islam, brothers and sisters. Umawi Islam. So, the observation back then, at that time, was during the fermentation process, there is a transition from the liquid that is being fermented. There's a transition of that liquid from being vinegar to becoming wine and there is a scale for that transition from vinegar to wine some Hanafi scholars they extended the range of that fermentation until it reached what is called wine 
And so according to these, and there's not many of them, all the ahnaf, they agree that wine is not permissible. But according to these, whoever they were, two or three scholars, well-known scholars in the school of thought, they said wine is all right. What, even if they said something like that, you're going you're gonna to come and make an enemy out of them or non-Muslims out of them or these types of issues. If you do, then you have the Umawi virus in you. I don't care. If I come across a Muslim who is convinced that the fermentation of whether it's grapes or dates or whatever, the fermentation of that borders on the product being called wine which he thinks is consumable i would just have to sit with him and reason and if he doesn't reason and doesn't and he thinks okay we're going to have muslims drinking wine to that extent just like in another school of thought maybe i should mention in the maliki school of thought According to some in that school of thought, now I'll remember we're speaking about some. And these sums are the ones that the Umawi misrepresentation and misexplanation of Islam wants to concentrate on. So if a school of thought or a couple of scholars in a school of thought said it's all right to eat dog's meat. This is not hypothetical, it's true. It's all right to eat dog's meat. Here we have a couple of individuals in the Hanafi school of thought, a couple of individuals in the Maliki school of thought, from the extent of it's all right to drink something that can be called wine, to the other say it's all right to eat something that is called dog's meat. The issue is not what they said. The issue is us, we the Muslims, taking these types and with all the accumulated knowledge and advanced science that we have in our capacity now no one has really taken a serious look at these issues when that day comes we may be able to deal with them in a more let's say enlightened way but even if we don't reach that why should we make these issues, issues of division among the Muslims. Why? And bad feelings. Let's say there is an, a Muslim from this school of thought or that school of thought who, who thinks that something is halal when in reality it is not halal. But he does everything and he may be more concerned with the issues of justice and equality than he is with dietary issues. But no, the Umawi Islam, they want us to prioritize our appetite issues, whether they are the appetite of our stomach or the appetite of our mid-waist. They want us to emphasize all of that, substitute all of the issues that the Prophet struggled for. Take the issue of Ramadan, just as an, a simple example. How many Ramadans do we fast? Let's say the healthy person in us lives 90 years. 
he began fasting when he was he or she were 15. So that's 75 years of fasting. Let's say 70 years of fasting. In a normal life, we fast 70 years. How many Ramadans did the Prophet fast? Seven years. We fast 10 times more than the Prophet fasted. And then we, we make this our issue. So what is the Prophet doing in all of these other years? Same thing with, with the Salah. We pray earlier than when we fast. And we can continue to pray beyond our capacity to fast. Meaning early in life and later in life. We pray more. How many years did the Prophet pray? Less than 10 years. Umawi Islam. Umawi Islam. Reaction to Umawi Islam. The dumbing down by Umawi Islam. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us in this regard to bypass this presentation of Islam or this reduction of Islam or this almost obliteration of Islam. We ask Allah to help us in this regard. وأستغفر الله لي ولكم ادعوه سبحانه وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed Muslims, brothers and sisters Now For A few minutes of fresh air now breaking away from the 1,000 years plus of going in a vicious circle trying to understand and explain an Umawi imposition upon the Quran and the Prophet. This week, many Muslims actually all Muslims in one way or the other were conscious of the 10th of Al-Muharram. Sunni Muslims look at it one way and this needs and I think I, I've spoken on this before but this is one of these Yahudi inroads inside the Muslims Muslim communities, Muslim societies that have the Muslims celebrating the rescue of Musa from the Pharaoh on the 10th of Muharram. I think those who have that version of history, they're going to have to catch up on 
how destructive the internal Yahudi termite has been in our books of Sunnah and Hadith and history, etc. The 10th of Muharram should be better identified as the day in which the legitimate ruler of the Muslims was defeated by, defeated in the immediate sense, in the physical sense, in the worldly sense by the Umawis that we were just speaking about in the previous khutbah who imposed on the rest of the Muslims this tight and intolerant and antagonistic attitude from one Muslim towards the other. So on the 10th of Al-Muharram, what happened? Those of you who tuned in in the past 10 days or so, you tuned in to presentations about Imam al Hussein alayhi salam. And I mentioned in the previous khutbah that the 10th of Al Muharram was the day on which three powers in the world came together to defeat the legitimate leadership of the Muslims of the world. That was Imam al-Hussein. Those three powers were the Zionists of those times. Remember, we said Imam al-Hussein's grandfather and Imam al-Hussein's father, they defeated the Zionists of those times in Al-Madina and in Khaybar. Those people who you've been listening to, I don't, I'm not mentioning anyone specifically. This is a general, I'm dealing with a phenomenon. I'm dealing with an attitude. I'm not dealing with personalities. So please don't superimpose on what I am saying any particular individual. But the fact, the observable fact of the matter is no one relates or no one tries to explain the grudge, the reaction, the conspiracy of the Zionists of those times waiting for the day in which they can score back against those who defeated them. Add to their defeat, the Zionists were defeated in the Arabian Peninsula, and then they were defeated in Al-Quds. The Muslim, the Muslims came with their forces to Al-Quds, and then once again they felt that they not only in Al-Quds, not only were the Zionists defeated, but the Byzantines, the imperialists were defeated. Now we had two enemies that wanted to fight back and wanted to triumph. 
And here is where they linked up with the Umawis, with Muawiyah and Yazid. There was a linkage between these three forces. Now, how healthy would it be to say that the Zionists and the imperialists and the dual loyalists, otherwise known as Al-Munafiqeen, how healthy would it be to say that their military plans, their political ambitions, all of them came together. Just like we see in today's world. What do you see? In, open your eyes. What do you see in today's world? Don't you see these same forces in front of your own eyes what they are trying to do so why when when you are listening to a presentation about Ashura and about Karbala why don't you listen in that presentation or those presentations why don't you listen to the Zionist and imperialist component of it how long is this going to go on? Umawi Islam once again. The reaction to Umawis once again. It lives on among us. Let me ask you this. Al-Imam Al-Husayn alayhi salam wa radiyallahu an. When did he go to Karbala? On the, he arrived in Karbala on the second of Al-Muharram. The second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, until the tenth. Those were the days leading up to that courageous and heroic stand against these powers that were using all of these world powers and regional powers using all of their potential. Let me ask you, I, and I'm doing this in a brotherly and, and in an honest manner. Some people can't take criticism. And this is not meant to harm anyone's feelings. It's just meant to bring our hearts together and our minds together. Ask yourself especially if you come from the tradition that is very aware of the 10th of Al-Muharram. What do you know about Al-Imam Al-Husayn in all of his life up until the 2nd of Al-Muharram? What do you know about him? Do you know anything about his interaction with his friends? His social character, his position during the wars that took place before Karbala, all of these are details. We're talking about a good 50 years of details after Imam Hussein obviously reached the age of responsibility. What do you know? What do you know? 
So it's very important for us to factor in today's facts. What is happening in the real world? Allah did not give us this responsibility and the Prophet did not sacrifice for this responsibility just for some emotional outburst once a year. There are five million Yemeni babies and children who are potentially going to die from hunger. In the commemoration of Ashura and Karbala, were the speakers bringing you the facts of a Karbala and a Ashura that has been in progress now for years, just in one place in Yemen. They can they can take their pick. There are other places like that that have the same elements. But some of them say, no, 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 we don't, this is, you know, this is politics, this is, you know, we're not, please, don't mention that. There's a Saudi delegation, security, military personnel that went to the northeast of Syria just this past week on Tuesday. And today they're having a meeting with some of these forces there that are supervised by imperialists, call them the Byzantines of today's world. Then the president here in the United States, he threatens the Gulfers, the oil producing sheikhdoms, he's threatening them not, because next week there's going to be an OPEC meeting, He's threatening them, don't raise the price of the barrel of oil. Because you know if you do, your security depends upon us. Now, could we have had the same thing happening 1,390 years ago? Couldn't we have had the same thing that is happening today? For the first time in Saudi Arabia, the official TV station there has a female news anchor. This, Where did this come from? It, ca- it came from their connections with the imperialists and the Zionists. We're not against that. We're against them executing the orders of their masters on the terms of their masters to the detriments of their citizens and of the Muslims. For the first time now, the Saudi Arabian government is borrowing money, $11 billion, something called the Public Investment Fund is borrowing money. Washington here, last week they expelled the Palestinian representative, he's not an ambassador, but as close to an ambassador as you, 
They told him, get out of here, you and your family, as soon as you can, immediately. This doesn't fit. You see, if you want to mention something like that in the Umawi mindset, you're going, to say, you're going to say, oh, this is, you know, what are you talking about? We're talking about lives. We're talking about wars. We're talking about innocence that is being slaughtered in the world. There was a, a, a person back in the early 1990s, around 1992, during the Hajj, an Egyptian was in the Haram and Nabawi, in the Prophet's Masjid area in Al Madina Al Munawwara. And it just happened that while he was there, this Muslim from Egypt, while he was there, President Mubarak was performing his. rituals there of course he had very significant security forces around him so this and during that time if you can recall because you have to put this in context during that time there were clashes inside of egypt between the egyptian regime and islamic groups who were opposed to it they were violent they were deadly so this Egyptian person saw his own president there in the area of Al-Haram and Nabawi. He said to him, Ittaqillah. The word that we all know, Ittaqillah. Immediately he was rushed by the Saudi guards. He was apprehended. And they told him, what are you saying? You're embarrassing us. He said, I didn't say anything wrong. They took him, put him in, in jail, turned him over to Egyptian, the Egyptian embassy in Saudi Arabia. And the Egyptian embassy flew him to Egypt where he stayed in detention for 15 years behind bars because he told a president, Ittaqillah. Why are these presidents afraid of the word Ittaqillah? Ittaqullah. They're doing something wrong? How far are we from the leaders in the first generation of Muslims? There were no guards. They used to go to the Kaaba, they used to meet with people, they used to perform their salah. They were assassinated in the masjid, among the people, without any guards, because there was no Umawi Islam. We've been poisoned by it. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'a wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ijtinaba wa la taj'alhu multabisan alayna وَجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا اللهم اهدنا في من هديت وعافنا في من عافيت وتولنا في من توليت وبارك لنا فيما أعطيت وقنا شر ما قضيت فإنك تقضي ولا يقضى عليك 
وإنه لا يذل من واليت ولا يعز من عاديت تباركت ربنا وتعاليت فلك الحمد على ما قضيت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك وصلى الله على محمد وآل محمد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الفلاح 